and nourish us today through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Now please stand with me for our scripture reading from Galatians 3, 15 through 29. You can find the passage in the Bibles provided or the words will be behind me on the screen. Now hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 3, 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given, if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds. Uh, like Kyle said, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and I'm very uh, glad to be with you all this morning. The past five weeks, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Galatians, and what we've seen is that the Apostle Paul made it a practice to write letters that defended and clarified the Christian gospel. He wrote letters to churches defending and clarifying the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is addressing a lot of different issues, but his purpose is always to defend and clarify the gospel. And today, in this particular passage, Paul is defending and clarifying the gospel by reminding the Galatians that everyone, everyone, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, everyone, is a son of Abraham, a son of blessing, through faith in the faithful one, Jesus Christ. So, for those of you who don't know, um, my wife Kimberly and I have uh, three little girls, uh, Abigail, Penelope, and Edie. That's Abigail in the middle, Penelope on the left, and Edie uh, on the right. That was actually when things were going really well. Um, <laughs> It didn't go well just after that. Um, 
but I'm happy to say that Edie is still with us. Um, <laughs> there was a lean back, and then it just all just went, it went poorly. Um, but they're, they're lovely, they're wonderful, they're hard, they're very emotional, but they are all ours. And our home is, our home is full of hair. Um, <laughs> just everywhere. Um, Abby, who's in the middle, our five-year-old, she's our oldest, she's starting kindergarten in the fall. And a few years ago, I had a conversation with her at our, uh, our kitchen table about this reality that she's part of our family. So I said, you're, you're part of our family, you're part of my family, Abby, and I'm, I'm part of your family. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? And of course, she didn't and just sort of stared at me. But I said, what that means is that as a family that we belong to one another, that Edie belongs to you and you belong to her and mommy belongs to me and I belong to her and it's like we all belong to each other. That my family is her family and her family is our family and, and then I, I just said, you know, I made her a, like a, just like a promise. I said, you know, because you're mine, because you're mine, because you're my daughter, everything I have, everything I have is yours. And since she didn't know what to say, she just hugged me, which was very sweet. Um, why don't we take a moment, though, to carry out that story picture just a bit further. Let's say that maybe in the next eight to 10 years, Abby is just holy and completely unruly. Uh, she's only disobedient, she's reckless, she's a danger to herself, and she's regularly running away. So Kimberly and I decide to send her to boarding school for her discipline, for her guarding, for her teaching, really for her protection. In that scenario, I'm not sending her there because I'm absent or unloving or, I'm, or giving up my rights as her father giving her up as my daughter. But nor is sending her to boarding school going to make her more my daughter than she was before she left. Neither of those are true. But living in the knowledge that I might lose her, I decide to make a particular concession in order to guard her and keep her as my daughter so that all I promised her at that kitchen table can be hers one day. The Bible tells a similar story, describing God, this relationship between God and his people, like a relationship between a father and a son, a parent and a child. And we see God in the first book of the Bible making a promise to his people that he will be their father, they will be his children, and that he will bless them and bless the world with this great inheritance. But as the Bible shows over and over again, God's children, Israel, the Jews, proved to be entirely unruly and disobedient and dangerous and prone to wander. So God places a guardian, a teacher, a tutor, the law, over them to guard them and keep them as his people until his promised inheritance was ready to be revealed. So, what we have mentioned in previous weeks, just to kind of set the scene and the context of this part of the book, 
is that in Galatia there were a group of false teachers and they were requiring, specifically they were requiring every non-Jewish Christian convert not only to believe the promise that God would bless the world through Abraham, a promise that God was bringing to fulfillment through Jesus Christ, but they also needed to obey the law of Moses, specifically dietary restrictions and circumcision in order to become a full-fledged, justified son of Abraham, a son of God. So it was, it was like they were saying to every non-Jewish Christian convert, yes, Gentile convert, Jesus saves. But he is a Jewish savior, so you must become a Jew in order to become a son worthy of his full inheritance. So these false teachers were insisting that Gentile Christians take on those ethnic markers, dietary restrictions and circumcision to become culturally Jewish in order to belong in the family of God, in order to claim the inheritance promised to Jesus. And in response, Paul says, absolutely not. And he says it like this, Galatians 3 and 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made contract or covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul is explaining to all of his hearers that when God made the covenant promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would bless them and bless the rest of the world with this great inheritance, it was like a father making out his last will and testament, promising to leave everything to his children. But Paul says to add requirements to this kind of promise is like adding provisions to a last will and testament of a man who's already died. It can't be done. That can't happen even now. Once a last will and testament is written and that person dies, it is carried out to the letter. Nothing can be added to it. This is God's absolute promise and he will keep it. In fact, Paul says, to add requirements to a promise just invalidates it as a promise. It's no longer a promise. For instance, if I say, if I say to you on Monday, I'll take you to lunch tomorrow, that's a promise. But if I say on Tuesday, I'll take you to lunch, but you're paying. That's a fundamental change to the promise. Paul says, that's not the relationship between God's promise and his law. We don't become sons of God. This is what Paul's saying. We don't become sons of God by becoming Jewish and living like a Jew, renouncing our culture and taking on this new ethnic marker. 
We don't, come, we don't become sons of God by becoming Jewish and living like Jews any more than Abby would become more my daughter after getting her boarding school diploma. God's promise was to all the nations, not just the Jewish nation. So Paul is telling us we become sons through faith and trust in that promise, just like Abraham. Because Abraham believed the promise of God that he made to him 430 years before there was ever a law. So if you remember, Abraham, when the promise was given to him, he was not yet circumcised. He had not fulfilled any works of the law at the moment that he was counted righteous. His faith in God's promise was credited to him as righteousness, and he was a son of God before he took on any Jewish ethnic markers. Righteousness was given to him apart from his adherence to any law. So the false teachers in this requirement, they were failing to understand the true nature of the timeline. Now, Moses' law did come after, 430 years after God made his promise to Abraham and his offspring, but the law was never meant to replace the promise, and that's what these, these false teachers were doing. They were replacing the promise with the law. But the law was actually a support to the promise. The law, that's the relationship, is the law is a support to the promise, and that statement naturally results in some questions. Paul's, Paul is already following this in his response. How exactly does the law support the promise, and what is the purpose of the law? It's our natural question after that argument. He wants to help us see the role of the law to the promise, and so he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. All of that is pretty straightforward, so we can just skip all that. <laughs> Sorry, we can't do that. Um, if you remember during the days of Noah, when humanity had no law, it was just wall to wall, chaos and violence and horror and corruption. And it was actually horrific for all humanity that at that point, no law did exist. So it was actually an act of kindness and patience and fatherly love for God to give the law to Israel so that they wouldn't be lost to God forever like those who were lost in the flood. So how did the law of Moses support the promise made to Abraham? It preserved the Jewish people. It preserved Israel 
in the midst of their sinfulness and wayward disobedience, it kept them, it guarded them, it taught them until God could bring everything to fulfillment through Jesus. The law to Israel was like boarding school for Abby. Just like I would say to Abby, I love you, I don't want to lose you. God was saying to Israel, I love you and I don't want to lose you. And so in Romans 7, along with this idea of a guardian, like a guard standing outside of a cell, a guardian, the law was keeping Israel from essentially just spiraling into chaos and destruction. Paul gives us a little bit more nuanced insight into the role of the law as our teacher, as our tutor. And in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, he explains this a little bit further. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul was coveting. He just didn't know it until the law said, don't do that. And he went, wow, I do that. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So Paul is saying the same law that was given to be this guardian to Israel was also given so that the whole world, including Israel, would know that they were prisoners of sin. And Paul recounts his own experience of the law as if the law is a mirror to his own soul and heart. The law do not, covenant, do not covet actually made him see and feel his moral bankruptcy. Through the law, all of us realize not just that we're sinners, that we just make mistakes and do things wrong and hurt people, but that we are enslaved to sin. We are imprisoned under sin, completely unable to cure ourselves, save ourselves. So the law, Paul is saying the law defines sin, but it also reveals sin. And the false teachers were trying to use the works of the law to produce life, but God never intended for the law to give us life. It was never meant to provide moral or, or spiritual excellence for us. That was never its purpose. But the false teachers were using it for that purpose. You want full life? You want full inheritance? Become a Jew, and then you get the full inheritance. But aside from guarding us from severe and complete moral failure, the law revealed to the Israelites and to us today that we are in need of a savior. Now, for God to provide conviction of sin and the need for a savior through the law is a wonderful, beautiful, merciful, good gift from him to our world. Why? Because without the law, we would be trapped in an ever-deepening slavery to ourselves. 
while simultaneously experiencing a terribly impersonal and undefined, unstructured relationship with God. What does he want? What's good? What's right? How should I be living? How should I not be living? Without the law, we would be left to oscillate between self-justified pride, I'm doing enough, or self-deprecating despair, I'm never gonna be able to do enough. And those are our choices without the law. Children do not feel more secure with a father that never disciplines them. Where there is loving, clear discipline, there is structure, there is stability, there is trust. It's not enlightened for a parent to say, do whatever you want. It creates life and relationship for children when they're directed, when they're taught, when they're protected, when they're corrected. And this is where Paul shows us the gospel in full. But now that faith has come, he says, now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise was made to Israel. The law was introduced to Israel within their own history of failure and waywardness and disobedience. And their sin and transgression made the law necessary for their protection. But they couldn't believe the promise and they could not obey or fulfill the law. It is a total breakdown. But where Israel failed and where we have failed, Jesus has not. Jesus is the singular faithful offspring. The promise of the Father was made to him and he lived a life without sin, without transgression, in full trust of the Father and his promise, in full obedience to Moses' law. He fulfilled every part of it. He was the only one who trusted the Father's promise, and he was the only one who could have been called a true son of Abraham because he relived Israel's history faithfully. Israel was called to be a distinct people that trusted the promise of God and lived according to his laws so that he might bless the nations through them. But they failed, but Jesus did not. He lived Israel's history faithfully as a faithful son. He was the only son, the only son of Abraham who finished boarding school. Every one of us, every other Israelite, every other person 
is a dropout. But the unbelievable part is that even though Jesus earned the right to be called the true son of Abraham, the true and faithful son of God, he went to the cross and submitted to being treated as the son who ran away for good. On the cross, the father put on him all of Israel's disobedience, all of ours, all our sin, all our failure, all our distrust, every transgression put on Christ, the one who the blessing belonged to, but he didn't get it. He gave it to us. All our attempts to save self and self-rescue, Jesus paid for all of it. And on the cross, his death, his resurrection, our curse and imprisonment under sin was swallowed up in his righteousness. We were born enemies of God, the Bible said. He was born the son of God and he traded places with us, became an enemy so that all of us could become sons. God made the promise to us and then he kept it for us in Christ. And when any one of us comes to trust in Christ, this is what happens. We get a brand new history. We get his history. He shares his life. He shares his relationship with the Father. He shares his perfect record. He shares his perfect trust. He shares it all with us by faith. In him, through faith and baptism, we get his history. And in Christ, we become Abraham's, crazily enough, his faithful offspring. And we shouldn't want to submit ourselves again to an old history that was getting us nowhere, that was getting us just pride or despair. We are welcomed to abandon that option and go all in with Jesus. Everything. All of our identity, all of our significance, all of our worth, all of our meaning, is Jesus. In Christ, we don't have to aim to be sons. We don't have to try to be sons. We are sons in Christ. We've already been made sons. We don't have to work for our sonship any more than Abby has to work now to be more my daughter. She's my daughter. Paul says we have put on Christ. He is now our primary identity. He is closer than anyone will ever be to us. We have put him on. Think about that idea of, being, of putting on Christ. He's our covering, dealing with our shame, our fear, our guilt. He is our security. And now in Christ, everything we say, do, and think is informed by that identity He shared with us. So what does that mean and how can we live now? What does that mean for us, Sojourn, and how can we live now? 
It means that through Jesus, God is making us into one family with a great and lasting inheritance. We are all sons of God in Christ, not Jew through the law or Gentile through faith, some sort of separation. Our primary identity is not that we're Gentile, not that we're Jew or slave or free or male or female. We are all one in Christ through faith. We are adopted into this large family in Christ. Sojourners, it means that I can say the same thing to you that I said to Abby. I belong to you, and you belong to me, and we belong to each other. We belong to Christ, and he belongs to us. But as a family of people with many distinctions, we have not become homogenous in Christ. We don't have to renounce our respective cultures. We are all unique, and we are all in Christ. It's beautiful. It does mean that what happened in Charlottesville is evil and detestable in the sight of God. It is completely out of step with the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus offers reconciliation and transnational peace across all cultures, all races, all politics. In Christ, all warring factions have come to an end. All barriers that have separated us come down in the cross. And Jesus has invited everyone to the table of fellowship Everyone to the table of fellowship, all are welcome regardless of race, politics, class, or religion. Not that everyone at the table will be a brother in Christ, but everyone at the table will be a neighbor. And we are called to love our neighbors. And finally, it means that if you have placed your trust in Jesus and his finished work, then you are Christ's and you are a son of Abraham, you have that assurance in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained that faith like this. We can put it this way. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and he rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, ah yes, I have committed terrible sins, but I've done this and that. He stops saying that. If he goes on saying that, he has not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, yes, I have sinned grievously. I have lived a life of sin, yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And God has put that to my account.
Maybe you're wondering if you're a Christian. How can I know? How can I know if I'm a Christian? Do you look at Jesus and say, there is my righteousness. There is my savior. There is my king. If you can say that and you trust him, put all your faith in him, even small faith, you are a son of Abraham. You are a child of God. You are a Christian. I think sometimes we're trying really hard to, to feel like sons rather than just beholding Jesus and being satisfied with the righteousness that he offers to every one of us. You have been justified and all that Christ has, all the Father has, is yours in Christ. And now, as the family of God at Sojourn, as the church at Sojourn, as sons, and because we're all sons, we're all brothers, and because we're all brothers, we're all family, we can live according to the principles that we learned at boarding school. We can love God with everything that we have. We can love each other and others as we would love ourselves because we have been fully loved by the Father and called sons. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your promise, the promise that you made to Christ, the promise inheritance that you fulfilled in Christ and that the inheritance that you have shared with us in Christ by faith. When we can take no credit, you have done it all. You have been kind and patient and generous and long-suffering. You have walked with us through it all. Thank you for your beautiful law. Thank you for your beautiful law. God, that, that in so many ways has kept us as well, it has guarded us as well. And we thank you that in Christ, we're fully guarded, held by your power, our faith held by your power. Father, please, would you make us a place that is eager to welcome people to the table, that actually wants for there to be a bigger table so that more can be invited to experience your grace and your goodness. 
and help us to trust you and to look to your righteousness and be in awe of your goodness, your righteousness, to be in awe of Christ and say with confidence, there is my king. There is my savior. And that we would fully delight in you in that. We thank you. We love you. Please help us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday, God welcomes his children to come and share a meal with him. And this meal is called communion, also called the Lord's Supper, and it's for every person who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. At this communion table, God communes with us and we commune with one another. And there's an element of mystery to this meal, so we want to embrace that. There is more to this meal than meets the eye. If we partake of the bread and the cup, we receive Christ and all of his benefits. We have our faith nourished and we get a foretaste of the heavenly feast that awaits us. In Christ through faith we have all been made sons and therefore family. We come to this table as a family. And in this meal Jesus welcomes all of us as we come claiming his righteousness. This is a meal that we get to have together with one another and our Father. This is a family meal. And I'm wondering if, if we can envision this I know it's difficult because we get into a line and we come down, but imagine if this room essentially just had a huge table in the middle and we all sat down and we shared food and drink and stories and songs and laughter and love and encouragement. That's what this is, a meal together as a family with our Father sharing in his joy in the Son. And the Holy Spirit is applying all the work of Christ, appropriating all the work of Christ to our hearts, our minds, our souls in this meal. A meal of joy, a meal of celebration. We are sons in Christ. We commune as the covenant people of God, praying to the Lord with one voice. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive this sacrament as a sign and seal of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this bread and this cup, the body and blood of Jesus. Enable us to eat and drink in faith, to grow up into the fullness of Christ, and to be conformed into the image of his self-giving love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're not quite ready to join us for this communion meal, that is okay. We have a prayer that will be on the slide behind me. 
that you can meditate on. But if you're ready, if you do trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to the table, please.